products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. Tired of paying too much for your internet? Contracts and hidden fees got you down? Tired of supporting the same big cable companies that lobby against a free and open internet? Get Monkey Brains! Monkey Brains is a local internet provider who doesn't sell your data, bind you down with contracts, or trick you with hidden monthly fees. We're honest, local, and 100% net neutral. Residential internet for only $35 a month, business packages starting at $75 a month. Go to monkeybrains.net and sign up today. Asiento. Asiento. Take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink. Have delicious tapas and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento, honestly, is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls. Trivia on Mondays. Taco Tuesdays. First Wednesday, live jazz. Live DJs Thursday. Parties. The food is darn good. Special happy hour prices all night long with your Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival ticket, March 1st through 5th. Check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com. Come take a seat. I had a date there and it did not go well. But it wasn't the fault of the place. They're very nice. Asiento. El Rio began her life in 1978 as a leather Brazilian gay bar. We are an LGBTQ plus space who is welcoming to all good people. We actively invest in communities to promote social change. We actively invest in our local arts and music scene to give space for artists. We actively pursue underserved communities in the use of our space. We are an awesome supporter of the fifth annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, hosting an incredible offside show. Wednesday, March 4th, 9 to 11 p.m., with LGBTQ and allied comics. So come out to 3158 Mission Street at Cesar Chavez, San Francisco. It's open every day at 2 p.m. with an incredible back patio. El Rio is your dive. Let us watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Michael Eagleman and Carl. Let us watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Car- Michael Eagleman and Carl. La da da. Da, 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 da. Michael Spiegel.
It was a dark day in Dallas, November 63. A day that would live on in infamy. President Kennedy was a right line. Good day to be living and a good day to die. Bob Dylan's latest. Murder Most Foul. Welcome to Mutiny Radio's Labor and Love. Of course we do. We know who you are. Then they blew off his head while he was still in the car. Shot down like a dog in broad daylight. Was a matter of time and in the time and was right. You got unpaid debts. We've come to collect. We're gonna kill you with hatred without any respect. We'll mock you and shock you and we'll grin in your face. We've already got someone here to take your place. The day they blew out the brains of the king, thousands were watching, no one saw a thing. It happened so quickly, so quick by surprise Right there in front of everyone's eyes Greatest magic trick ever under the sun Perfectly executed, skillfully done Wolfman, oh Wolfman, oh Wolfman, how Rub-a-dub-dub, it's a murder most foul Hush, little children, you'll understand. The Beatles are coming, they're gonna hold your hand. Slide down the banister, go get your coat. Ferry across the mercy and go for the throat. There's three bums coming all dressed in rags. Pick up the pieces and over the flags. I'm going to Woodstock, it's the Aquarian age. Then I'll go over to Altamont and sit near the stage. Put your head out the window, let the good times roll. There's a party going on behind the glass window. Stack up the bricks, pour the cement. Don't say Dallas don't love you, Mr. President. Put your foot in the tank and step on the gas. Try to make it to the triple underpants. Black face singer, white face clown. Better not show your faces after the sun goes down. I'll be the red light district, like a cop on the beach. Living in a nightmare on Elm Street. When you're down on New Bellum, put your money in your shoe. Don't ask what your country can do for you. Cash on the ballad, money to burn. Daily Plaza, make a left hand turn. I'm going down to 
the crossroads gonna flag a ride The place where faith, hope and charity died Shoot him while he runs, boy Shoot him while you can See if you can shoot the invisible man Goodbye, Charlie Goodbye, Uncle Sam Frankly, Miss Scarlet, I don't give a damn What is the truth? Where did it go? Ask Oswald and Ruby, they ought to know Shut your mouth, say the last old owl Business is business, and it's a murder most found Tommy, can you hear me on the Ancient Queen? I'm riding along the lack of Lincoln limousine. Riding in the back seat next to my wife. Heading straight on into the afterlife. I'm leaning to the left, I got my head in the lap. Lord, I've been led into some kind of a trap Well, we ask no quarter, no quarter do we give We're right down the street From the street where you live They mutilated his body and they took out his brain What more could they do? They piled on the pain but his soul was not there where it was supposed to be at. For the last 50 years, they've been searching for that. Freedom, oh freedom, freedom of our need. I hate to tell you, mister, but only dead men are free. Send me some love, tell me no lie. the gun in the gutter and walk on by Wake up little Susie, let's go for a drive Cross the Trinity River, let's keep hope alive Turn the radio on, don't touch the dials Parkland Hospital, only six more miles Got me dizzy, Miss Lizzie. You fill me with lead. That magic bullet of yours is going to my head. I'm just a Patsy like Patsy Klein. Never shot anyone from in front or behind. Got blood in my eye. Got blood in my ear. Zubitus film I've seen life before 
seen it 33 times, maybe more. It's vile and deceitful, it's cruel and it's mean. Ugliest thing that you ever have seen. They killed him once and they killed him twice. Killed him like a human sacrifice. The day that they killed him, someone said to me, son, of the Antichrist has just only begun. Air Force One coming in through the gates. Johnson sworn in at 2.38. Let me know when you decide to throw in the towel. It is what it is, and it's murder most foul. What's new, Pussycat? What do I say? I said the soul of a nation will turn away. And it's beginning to go into a slow decay. And that it's 36 hours past Judgment Day. Wolfman Jack. He's speaking in tongues. He's going on and on, on at the top of his lungs. Play me a song, Mr. Wolfman Jack. Play it for me in my long Cadillac. Play me that only the good die young. Take me to the place Tom Dooley was hung. They say James Infirmary in the court of King James. If you want to remember, you better write down the names. Play the James too. Play it by the gold line. Play it for the man with the telepathic mind. Play John Lee Hooker. Play Scratch My Back. Play it for that strip club owner named Jack. Guitar slim going down slow. Play it for me and for Marilyn Monroe. Play, please don't let me be misunderstood. Play it for the first lady, she ain't feeling too good. Play Don Henley, play Glenn Try. Take it to the limit and let it go by. Play it for Kyle Wilson, too. Looking far, far away down Gower Avenue. Play Tragedy, play Twilight Time. Take me back to Tulsa to the scene of the crime. Play another one and another one bites the dust. Play the old rugged cross and in God we trust. Ride the pink horse 
down that long lonesome road Stand there and wait for us to explode Play mystery train for Mr. Mystery The man who fell down dead like a rootless tree Play it for the reverend, play it for the master Play it for the dog that got no master Play Oscar Peterson, play Stan Getz, play Blue Sky, play Dickie Betts, play Art Pepper, Thelonious Monk, Charlie Parker, and all of that junk, all that junk and all of that jazz. Play something for the Birdman of Alcatraz. Play Buster Keaton. Play Harold Lloyd. Play Bugsy Siegel. Play Bertie Lord Lloyd. Play the numbers. Play the odds. Play Cry Me a River for the Lord of the Gods. Play number nine, play number six. Play it for Nancy and Stevie Nicks. Play Nat King Cole, play Nature Boy. Play down in the boondocks for Terry Malloy. Play it happen one night at White Night of City. There's 12 million souls that are listening in. Play Merchant of Venice, play Merchants of Death. Play Stella by Starlight for Lady Macbeth. Don't worry, Mr. President. Help's on the way. Your brothers are coming. There'll be hell to pay. Brothers, what brothers? What's this about hell? Tell them we're waiting, keep coming. We'll get them as well. Love Field is where his plane touched down. But it never did get back up off of the ground. It was a hard act to follow. Second to none. They killed him on the altar of the rising sun. Play Misty for me and that old devil moon. Play Anything Goes and Memphis in June. Play Lonely at the Top and Lonely at the Brave. Play it for Houdini spinning around in his grave. Play Jelly Roll Morton, play Lucille. Play Deep in a Dream and play Driving Wheel. Play Moonlight Sonata in F sharp. And the key to the highway by the King of the Heart. Play Marching to Georgia in Dumbarton's Drum. Play darkness and death will come when it comes. 
they love me or leave me by the great bird hound. Play the bloodstained banner, flame murder, ghost hound. Bob Dylan there at midnight on March 27th, 2020, Bob Dylan released Murder Most Foul, his first studio release since 2017's Triplicate, and first original song release since 2012's Tempest. He noted on Twitter that fans might find the song interesting and also stay safe, stay observant the title likely derived from Shakespeare's Hamlet, the song revolves around the circumstances of President John F. Kennedy's assassination and its ensuing impact on popular culture, making many references to songs, films, musicians, artists, and celebrities who had come to prominence in the years following President Kennedy's death. Longest song he's written since Highlands, 1997. So yeah, we thought we'd start out, start you out with that on the uh, Labor and Love show. It is March 28th. Every Saturday morning between 10 and 12, we come your way with labor news labor observations, opinion, history, you name it. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. In today's terms, we can say, if 500 billions go to big corporations, that's 500 billions that people like you and me who work for a living didn't get. Remember, if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, you're on the menu. Never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. Of course, they don't want you to make alliances with other workers. Of course, they want you to go back to work. Get America back to work. Americans want to work. Yeah, yeah. Your work makes them rich. No doubt about it. Okay, like I say, we started out with Bob Dylan. <coughs> Labor and Love Radio in a plague year. I have some insights about that after a while. Something called street corner dialectics. But right now I want to get to Radio Labor, World Labor Report. What's going on all over the world with this pandemic? <laughs> 
This is a Radio Labour World Report recorded on Friday, March 27, 2020. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, what happens to working people if there is a global depression? The workers producing ventilators. A survey of what countries are doing to help workers. The Labour Start report about union events and singing. It's time for unity, solidarity forever. This is Radio Labour. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused widespread economic disruption, which some analysts have suggested may cause a worldwide depression. I talked to Pierre Abar about this. Mr. Abar is the General Secretary of the Trade Union Advisory Committee to the OECD. The committee operates under its acronym TUVAC. I asked Mr. Abar if there will be a global depression. We don't know yet if this crisis will end into a global depression, but we are clearly heading straight toward it. What started as a supply shock in China with the outbreak of the, uh, of the coronavirus spread over to Europe and transformed into a demand side uh, with a fall in production, but also in, uh, in the consumption. Uh, that means that even in the best case scenario, even if China gradually recovers and uh, resumes, so to speak, back to normal, the damage the spillover, the negative effect on the entire world economy will be so deep that in the very best scenario, by the end of the year, we should end in, with negative growth across many, many economies within the OECD, in Europe, very likely in the U.S., and uh, with a, a question mark for the uh, emerging economies. May, clearly, what we should expect is massive damage on the on labor markets with a uh, rise and a pickup in unemployment, rise in the uh, in the precarious jobs, bearing in mind that this time around, compared to 2008, our labor market institution, collective bargaining, minimum wages, have uh, even less coverage, are less uh, protective for workers. There have been a rise, as, you, as we all know, of uh, non-standard forms of work. So yes, the situation is really not a good one. If there is a depression or a severe recession, what will happen to workers? What would happen is, well, really the worst possible in the sense that we we are heading into a crisis after over 10 years of ongoing reforms which has reduced further protection on workers, reduced collective protections, collective bargaining protections with minimum standards on income, on health across the board. Unless there is strong response by government and internationally, uh, and frankly even if that happens, it will not caution the impact. What should unions be lobbying their governments to do? What unions should do and what unions are doing. For first, there is the emergency situation. One is to protect the healthcare workers and the workers who are on the front lines right now trying to contain this crisis. Many governments have already put up emergency packages not to steal. the economy, but to support the economy to prevent a total collapse of the entire economic system. So there are packages that have been implemented to support businesses. What unions are saying, that's fine, that's good, but we want employment guarantees and we want mechanisms that maintain workers in employment. A number of countries have expanded the mechanism for this is solidarity news on the radio whereby the government 
This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, March 27, 2020. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, what happens to working people if there is a global depression? The workers producing ventilators. A survey of what countries are doing to help workers. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. It's time for unity, solidarity forever. This is Radio Labor. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused what? Okay, well, that's our Radio Labor. Looks like uh, I have to go back to that one. talking about the global pandemic and uh, what we do about it, right? So we'll get back to radio labor. Um, It's one of the mainstays of this program. Let's talk a little bit about this deal. Corporate America fleeced us again. This is in these times. A fundamental spirit of the CARES Act, the diabolical plutocrat bailout the Senate just passed, is summed up by the fact that it was inspired by the $60 billion demand of a company whose business has not yet even been impacted by (coughs) coronavirus. You read that right. When Boeing made its humble plea for $60 billion in coronavirus relief funds on St. Patrick's Day 2020, leading the pack of corporate supplicants, all its assembly lines unrelated to its notorious self-hijacking 737 MAX jets, whose production halted in January, were still operating at normal capacity. They were still open in spite of the fact that Seattle public schools had been closed for six days. Every restaurant and bar in the state had been closed a weekend earlier. And in spite of the fact that disease was quickly spreading among factory workers, one of whom, a 27-year veteran of the company, would die within days. Five hundred billion corporate bailout the Senate appended doesn't have anything to do with the coronavirus. It's an audacious power grab by the same bunch of monstrous grifters, monstrous grifters who spent the past twenty years monstrous grifters reversing mortgaging the American economy to finance third-world dictator lifestyles. They took the spoils of a decade spent gouging passengers with fees for baggage and chips and Wi-Fi and ticket changes and four extra inches of legroom and spent 96% of them on stock buybacks. 
but the strings attached to the airline's bailouts are quite possibly the sole redeeming lines in the slush fund section of the bill. Thanks and no doubt in large part to lobbying by the Association of Flight Attendants under the leadership of Sarah Nelson, the airline bailout is structured to avoid layoffs, including those of contract employees who are targeted in a special $3 billion loan program. In exchange for cash, airlines must keep their staff and pay full salaries through September 20th. And in their defense, the airlines can at least claim they've been legitimately done in by the coronavirus. Can the same really be said for the cargo carriers? This last week, an air cargo travel consultant told Wire the cargo carriers were charging twice the typical per kilogram fee to transport cargo from China to Chicago. And yet there they are in Section 4003, earmarked for a dedicated loan guarantee program totaling $4 billion. At any rate, corporate, corporate America has screwed us again. Let's hear what uh, Robert Reich, former Secretary of Labor, has to say about this package. And people uh, and the economy is really the abstraction. Let's get back to people. So, uh, Katie, uh, what are you thinking about and uh, how are you doing? Well, personally, um, I'm I'm doing as well as I could be. Again, I'm incredibly grateful to have a safe home and a roof over my head that I can quarantine in. And I'm extremely lucky and grateful that I still have a job and that I can work from home. So in my personal life, I am doing okay. But systemically, I am very, very angry, Bob. And today well, I'm not going to mince words. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 you say you're angry. Now, there are yes. a lot of things to be angry about. Let's make mm -hmm. some priorities uh, in terms yes. of you. What, what are you angry about? I'll tell you what I'm angry about. But what are you angry about? So I am angry, absolutely livid. It's taking all of, it's going to take a lot of self-control to not drop a, bump, a bunch of F-bombs and express my anger that way during this broadcast. I am angry because there are a lot of people in power who are more concerned about money and profits than people's lives. For instance, last week, the big news of the week was two Republican senators, Richard Burr of North Carolina and Kelly Loeffler of Georgia, I believe, both of them, while telling the public that everything was fine and that it's not a big deal, weeks before the stock market crashed, both of them sold off over a million dollars in stock. Richard Burr on February 13th, he sold off um, about $1.62 million worth of stock, including his two biggest sales were in hotel chains. Then Kelly Loeffler, even before that, as early as the end of January, after all the senators received a classified briefing about coronavirus, she also sold off over a million dollars in stock 
and get this, then she bought stock in a teleworking company. And all the while, these two Republican senators are following the lead of Donald Trump hey, and downplaying an the severity of the crisis the to the public and saying, everything's fine, we're prepared, it's not gonna be a big deal. So I am absolutely outraged that these two well, senators you were- you should be angry. I mean, you should be angry. We all should be angry. We should actually insist that the two of them resign. Uh, they ought to be. Yeah. They should not be there. This is called profiteering. It's called insider trading. This is illegal. They ought to be prosecuted. Uh, now they should be prosecuted even in normal times. But to do this in a time of public crisis when we have a pandemic and they knew the pandemic was coming and they hid this fact from the public and they went along with the happy talk of of Donald Trump. Uh, this is beyond outrage. This really is a matter of, uh, of violating uh, the public trust that they have or they had that, that nobody should uh, elect them, reelect them. I don't care whether they're up for reelection or not. They ought to be they ought to resign and they ought to be prosecuted. I totally agree. And another note, um, Kelly Loeffler's husband is the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange. And I just don't understand how like any of this is allowed. And so far, they haven't faced any consequences. I mean, there have been calls for them to resign. And I think they're both under Senate ethics uh, investigations. But who knows what that's you know going to turn out to be. So I I'm just really angry that it looks like these two people blatantly violated the public trust, violated the law, violated their oaths to serve the public, and it looks like they might not have any consequences for it, face any consequences well, for it. So. Hopefully, federal prosecutors actually do have some power uh, and some independence. You know, the Southern District of New York, for example, uh, where, these, uh, where you have the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, I mean, yeah. the, and there are federal prosecutors around that are not uh, inhibited, or at least not unduly inhibited, by Barr, by Attorney General Rick Barr. And I hope that uh, they they go after these people, not only because they have violated the law, Burr and Loeffler, but also because they have violated at a time of national emergency, and they violated the public trust at a time when we are all looking to our leaders to give us some sort of direction and hope and leadership. Uh, so this is this is compiling uh, the the reasons for. I mean, th this is not just a run of the mill uh, insider trading yeah. case. This is much worse than that. I'll tell you. Uh, can I just, since you have contributed to your own anger, my <laughs> yes, anger is please. that this new bill. Let's hear it. My, my anger is that this new Senate bill that just uh, emerged, uh, that the House is on the verge of giving a sort of approval to pro forma. Uh, by unanimous consent or just uh, eyes over knaves, uh, this bill has $500 billion uh, for corporate bailouts and almost no constraints on CEO pay. There's sort of a, a kind of a little bit of a, a lid on CEO pay. Uh, you know, if, they've, if, if they made $3 million last year, they've got to anything over $3 million. Uh, they've got to have only a percentage of that over $3 million. This formula is just baloney. Uh, and why in the world aircrafts and cruise ships and hotels, including Donald Trump's hotels, have any reason to get any money from taxpayers at all now when you have regular people, millions of people who are now home, they don't know how they're going to pay their bills. 80% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, and they desperately need money right now. Uh, and we're the richest country in the world. And we can easily, I mean, we, you know, uh, in December of 2017, we gave a $2 trillion tax cut 
-hmm. to big corporations and the wealthy. Big corporations used it to buy back their shares of stock, give their executives, uh, you know, line the, the, the linings the, of their executives, uh, make their and their major investors even richer. We're doing the same thing again. We're doing exactly the same thing we did before again. In fact, we're doing it for the third time because in 2008 we did it uh, for the big Wall Street banks. And we said, well, you know, they got all these bank presidents and CEOs. They got all these bonuses and they, they made off like bandits. Uh, and average working people lost their savings. They lost their jobs. They lost their homes. Uh, not a single person on Wall Street was brought to justice. Uh, not Certainly not any of the big uh, kingpins of Wall Street. This is the third time in, in 10 years we've gone through exactly the same movie and i you know i for one i i'm furious i think the the public you know if we were not so cloistered right now and we have to be if this were not a public health crisis and it must be and we must recognize it as such once this is over i certainly hope politically all of us remember who took advantage of this situation to pad their own nests I totally agree. And I'm just really glad we're on the same page in terms of how furious we are. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about that. Well, Senate I don't, bill. I don't know if it does huge... any good. I mean, well, you know, you can be curious. You can be furious. I can be furious. We can be here, you know, with uh, with hopefully a lot of other people who are sharing uh, our anger. This and is solidarity and I don't know where it gets us unless we turn this somehow into political mobilization next November. But let's yeah, just put I... a flag on that. Yeah, and I think we will. But so let's talk more about the Senate bill. It's a massive $2 trillion emergency relief package. Um, I totally agree with you. I think it's absurd that corporations are getting a $500 billion bailout with hardly any restrictions. Um, there's a ban on stock buybacks, but only for the duration of the loan. There's a dismally inefficient um, or insufficient limit on executive pay. Um, the one, there's no worker protections. Uh, businesses who get that loan don't need to keep their workers on their payroll, protect their benefits, none of that. No guaranteed $15 minimum wage. Um, so the one thing Democrats did secure, and again, it's woefully inefficient or insufficient. Um, so they got independent oversight of the recipients of the loans, and they also, none of Trump's businesses can benefit or any of his family businesses. And so they got independent oversight and the recipients of the loans have to be made public within seven days, which all sounds good in theory. I mean, it's still corporations shouldn't be see seeing a cent of taxpayer money. But in the very next section that stipulates all those limits, um, turns out Treasury, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin can waive those restrictions whenever he wants, however he sees fit. So well, those it, restrictions know, that don't is, even again, do if, anything. I mean, it's absurd. If, 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 if this were an administration uh, where, you know, they had earned our trust in terms of not engaging in self-dealing and not trying to take advantage of their power and privilege uh, over the last three years, maybe we'd have some confidence that an inspector general uh, would actually provide some independence and a secretary of the treasury would take uh, his responsibility seriously. But remember, this is an administration and Donald Trump has been engaged in self-dealing, making money off of his office for much of the last two and a half, three years. And yeah. uh, you, you know exactly what's going to happen. I mean, Steve Mnuchin is uh, from Wall Street. Uh, Steve Mnuchin will do exactly what 
Wall Street thinks and wants and exactly what Donald Trump wants. And so this is just a, a, a ta another taxpayer uh, giveaway at a time when millions of Americans need money. Uh, Katie, did you notice how much money is being provided to average working people? Uh, average people, uh, in terms of the people who are going home now, staying home, can't work. It's a pittance. Yeah, and it's interesting because so the one really good provision in the bill was that it expanded unemployment insurance to make um, gig workers, contract workers, and self-employed workers eligible, and it added um, an additional $600 a week for the next four months on top of state unemployment benefits. So that's a huge, huge get, and that is really great. But because this just, I had to laugh at how absurd this was. Yesterday, the bill was on the verge of being fast-tracked, but four Republican senators, Lindsey Graham, um, Rick Scott, Tim Scott, and Senator steps. Cassidy, they all decided to lodge a last minute amendment because they thought that the minimum, they thought that the unemployment insurance expansion was too generous. They thought that because low wage workers would make less than $600 a week on their normal salary, that $600 a week would encourage workers to stay laid off, to quit their jobs, to not re-enter the workforce. And Lindsey Graham actually said, and this is a quote, nurses are gonna make $24 an hour on unemployment, which would incentivize workers to stay out of the workforce. I mean, Bob, what is happening? These four, we're in the middle of an unprecedented global crisis that we've never seen before. And Republicans are literally worried that poor people are gonna get too much money. I mean, what? planet are we living on right now so well what, it's not what are your we're thoughts on, planet, on this we're, I on mean, planet, if, we're on planet republican uh, greed that's the planet we're on uh, and remember this is in the context of them just giving 500 billion dollars uh, to big corporations with almost no limits on executive pay i, I mean the mind boggles uh, what, what they obviously don't understand is that this is a public health crisis and we want people to stay home for the good of all in other words everybody who stays home is helping slow the spread of the pandemic. We all need people to stay home. So if people are staying home, and maybe a few people are making a little bit more money than they were making when they were actually on the job, is that such a horrible thing? Uh, that's what I mean, we it's... want. I mean, that seems to be appropriate. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And um, thank God Bernie Sanders, he had a really fiery, passionate speech on the Senate floor last night. And I just felt like I was so um, I was so happy to see that because it felt like he was just channeling all this anger that I had. And he actually got them to stand down because he said, OK, you guys, if you're going to block this bill based on the unemployment insurance, then I'm going to block this bill. If you don't stand down, I'm going to block this bill because of this five hundred billion dollar bailout. So shout out to Bernie Sanders. Okay, there's Robert Reich talking about the uh, bailout program, which turns out to be a big gift again for corporations. And imagine Lindsey Graham. I wonder if Lindsey Graham would stand up and say that the bailout to corporations is too much. If we give people too much money, they'll stop working. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? This pandemic has exposed, has exposed 
global capitalism and the U.S. government for what it is. They're two halves of the same thing, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. When one gets a cold, the other sneezes. All right, let's go back to radio labor now. We finally got it going. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, March 27, 2020. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, what happens to working people if there is a global depression? The workers producing ventilators. A survey of what countries are doing to help workers. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. It's time for unity, solidarity forever. Ah. This is Radio Labor. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused widespread economic disruption, which some analysts have suggested may cause a worldwide depression. I talked to Pierre Abar about this. Mr. Abar is the General Secretary of the Trade Union Advisory Committee to the OECD. The committee operates under its acronym TUVAC. I asked Mr. Abar if there will be a global depression. We don't know yet if this crisis will end into a global depression, but we are clearly heading straight toward it. What started as a supply shock in China with the outbreak of the, uh, of the coronavirus spread over to Europe and transformed into a demand side uh, with a fall in production, but also in, uh, in the consumption. Uh, that means that even in the best case scenario, even if China gradually recovers and uh, resumes, so to speak, back to normal, the damage the spillover, the negative effect on the entire world economy will be so deep that in the very best scenario, by the end of the year, we should end in with negative growth across many, many economies within the OECD, in Europe, very likely in the U.S., and uh, with a, a question mark for the uh, emerging economies. May, clearly, what we should expect is massive damage on the on labor markets with a uh, rise and a pickup in unemployment, rise in the uh, in the precarious jobs, bearing in mind that this time around, compared to 2008, our labor market institution, collective bargaining, minimum wages, have uh, even less coverage, are less uh, protective for workers. There have been a rise, as, as we all know, of uh, non-standard forms of work. So yes, the situation is really not a good one. If there is a depression or a severe recession, what will happen to workers? What would happen is, well, really the worst possible in the sense that we we are heading into a crisis after over 10 years of ongoing reforms which has reduced further protection on workers, reduced collective protections, collective bargaining protections, with minimum standards on income, on health across the board. Unless there is strong response by government and internationally, uh, and frankly, even if that happens, it will not caution the impact. What should unions be lobbying their governments to do? What unions should do and what unions are doing. For first, there is the emergency situation. One is to protect the healthcare workers and the workers who are on the front lines right now trying to contain this crisis. Many governments have already put up emergency packages not to stimulate the economy, but to support the economy to prevent a total collapse of the entire economic system. 
So they're all packages that are being implemented to support businesses. What union are saying, that's fine, that's good, but we want employment guarantees and we want mechanisms that maintain workers in employment. A number of countries have expanded a mechanism for temporary unemployment insurance schemes whereby the government adds, put money for workers who are temporarily uh, in unemployment situation. But beyond that, we need to massively reinvest stop the austerity cuts uh, in the healthcare system. What we also need is beyond the emergency support to engage coordinated fiscal stimulus to support the economy on the longer run, not just in the next two or three months, but (laughs) this is a crisis that will pertain, that will continue, and it's over well over 12, 18 months that that we need to implement strong policy response, strong stimulus for the economy. The last point is that we don't know exactly what this virus is about. I'm not a health specialist, but there's a lot of uncertainty on how this virus outbreak is going on. That creates uncertainty, obviously, and first and foremost for all of us from a sanitary point of view. It creates also uncertainty for the economy. The economic impact, which comes second, obviously, to the sanitary and health impact, the economic impact is with the uncertainty created by the measures how long to prevent the outbreak? How long will the confinement measures be enforced? We don't know. We don't know if it is just one month, two months, even more. And it is this uncertainty that really today is preventing the economy from running. Does the pandemic have lessons for how we organize our health care systems? Yes, definitely. We should remind that, uh, of course, this crisis is first a sanitary crisis. It's a health crisis. The people who are on the front line are the healthcare workers and uh, the workers in other essential public services. So there are obviously key lessons to draw on how governments have been responding to the crisis. It clearly shows that in countries, particularly in Europe, uh, this crisis has exposed the fragility, how fragile our healthcare system has has become. After years and years of austerity cuts in hospital, to give you a, a concrete figure, in Europe and many other OECD countries, the number of beds in hospitals has been decreased by 30%. We all know that the workforce is in hospitals, nurses and, and doctors and other specialists, is in many countries way below what would be needed just to face normal needs, not even, and not to speak of what we would need for such a crisis. So this crisis brings back the conversation that we need to have on public services, on public health care systems. And that requires massive investment in hospitals, in public infrastructure for health, in public infrastructure for other essential services. And it also brings back to the table the conversation on the right universal right to treatment, universal right to social security, to health care. How governments are responding to the pandemic is crucial for workers. Seamarie Ainsborough reports. The International Trade Union Confederation has surveyed government responses to the COVID-19 pandemic in 69 countries. Twelve countries have been identified as putting the priorities of working people first as they tackle economic disruption. The ITUC is the labor organization which represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trade Union Congress at the world level. In Europe, the governments moving to economically help workers are Austria, Denmark, France, Germany, Ireland, Norway, Sweden, and the UK. In the Americas, Argentina and Canada have also put into place income support for self-employed workers. 
The ITUC has identified a number of demands which will help working people. They include paid sick leave, wage support for directly employed workers, and income support for freelancers, self-employed workers, and gig economy workers. Other measures include loan relief for rent or mortgage payments and free health care. You can find more about the ITUC survey on its website at www.ituc-csi.org. This is Seamarie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour. People die of COVID-19 because they can't breathe. What they need are machines called ventilators. A ventilator moves breathable air into and out of the lungs. The problem facing many nations is that there are simply not enough ventilators for the people who need them now and the people who will need them. One of the factories trying to quickly produce ventilators is the GE plant in the U.S. state of Wisconsin. The workers at the plant are represented by the International Association of Machinists, Local 1406. Trevor Smeldahl is a member of the local. Every ventilator we get off the end of our line is saving a life. The term, uh, this is a wartime situation, has definitely flown around our plant quite a bit. We are not going to shut our doors. We, uh, when everybody else is out there really stressing out about what's going to happen in the future, we can't really, we can't really dwell on that because we got to get this stuff done and we got to show up every day and get as many of these machines out to the people all over the world. People will start to burn out and it'll be hard to continue it, continue the, uh, the upswing of production. I just, that's kind of where being in a union and being brothers and sister comes into play. You just kind of, kind of keep each other motivated, make sure people are staying healthy, getting enough to eat, getting enough to sleep. If they need to talk about things, you got to listen. That definitely helps. I would say that just keep up the faith. I know that my coworkers, we're going to show up every day and we're going to get as many out as, as we can. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 35 languages. These days, a large majority of the stories they post on our site have to do with the COVID-19 crisis. So in response to the crisis, Labor Start has created a special page on our site. There you will find thousands of current stories in 35 languages about how the virus is affecting workers and how their unions are responding. COVID-19 strikes or work refusals over safety concerns were organized by dockers all across the globe, postal workers in Canada and the UK, air transport workers just about everywhere, call center workers in Central America and in Portugal, Public transport workers denied personal protective equipment in a large number of countries, and by workers in large industrial workplaces like the Italian steel workers who walked off the job on Thursday to demand that their employer stop production. Short walkouts caused by healthcare workers demanding better equipment, preparations, and training to deal with the COVID-19 crisis happened this week in Brazil, Canada, Portugal, Spain, India, Italy, Kenya, Malaysia, Luxembourg, El Salvador, Paraguay, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, Pakistan, Zambia, Hong Kong, and South Africa. At the same time, strikes like the National Public Sector walkout in Brazil 
have been redesigned so as to ensure social distancing in some strikes, like those by Canadian and Portuguese and Indian teachers, British postal workers, and others have been delayed by the unions involved. But in other cases, governments have moved to freeze labor relations, ending strikes before they have even begun. We are also seeing signs that unions are preparing for the end of the crisis as an opportunity to make gains for workers. In many countries, public transport unions have successfully argued that transit should be free during the crisis so that their members need not be at risk when collecting fares. Many such unions are allying with the organizations representing transit users and hope to maintain free public transport as a weapon in the war on global warming. But employers and governments are using the crisis to roll back hard-won rights. In the United States, a common employer tactic is to trade continuing employment in essential industries in exchange for lower wages. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Benny Esguera with a new version of Solidarity Forever. No more division, no, we're bringing a new vision, and it's just in time from ashes we give birth a new tradition. Solidarity forever with a new millennium flavor. Now we're resurrecting it. One century later, keep our feet fixed on the past in order to stay rooted in our minds. I on tomorrow so that today we get through this, so that one day we're victorious. So just gather now, come here. Divisions are created by those who doubt and fear. We give thanks to all the workers who put it all on the line. Those who took it to the streets, moving crowds with conscious minds. Those who gave their lives, give thanks to those who made lost lost only work for those who make them not break them be patient the best way to protect your rights is by always knowing your rights without our brain and muscle not a single wheel can turn so put your hands together all under one umbrella it's time for unity solidarity forever Social welfare's been aborted, labor crimes go unreported. When we try to fight back, it seems we can't afford it. We try to be united, but they're implementing laws that are keeping us divided. They're commodifying labor, then they're bidding for the lowest. They're thinking that it's clever, but we know we're something better. Solidarity forever. Now jobs are disappearing, and all we're ever hearing is pay a lot more, get paid a little less. Work a little harder, then work a little longer, but we're taking it no longer. We're decided we're uniting, because together we are stronger. The unions got our back, CBAs, protections, better wages, a fact. So we're making a choice, and we're making some noise. We're walking with poise, and we're raising our voice. We're singing... That's it, international labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about caring for each other through global solidarity. Radio Labor ended it up with global solidarity as they always do. And if there ever was a moment for global solidarity, for being kind to one another, 
for stopping and helping the Samaritan who's laid out on the ground. This is the time for it. I got um, a request this week from Jose Mateo Ramirez. And his band that he wanted me to play was Black Flag. So here you go, Jose. Black Flag, one of the premier punk bands. This one's called Rise Above. That was Rise Above. Mm. Police story. Black Flag was one of the premier punk groups uh, in the 80s. Vocalist Henry Rollins. What you say? What that means? 
had uh, Solidarity Forever, a hip-hop version. We had Rise Above by Black Flag and Police Story, also by Black Flag, talking about the hopelessness, the divide between the people and the police. The police as the soldiers of business, the soldiers of the status quo, and regular citizens. Okay. Looks like I'm unable to play any songs today. Let's see. Albums. Um. playing anything. Tell it like it is. <coughs> Pardon me. Okay, so what is this thing? What is this this bugaboo, this socialism that people are are mentioning more and more, even before this crisis began. Um, and now it's coming more and more into the, what we call the national debate or something like that. Uh, socialism. What is it? Here is... Francesca Fiorentini with her version of what is socialism, the monster hiding under Our America's chupacabra, bed. our candy man. Say it three times into a mirror and your kid goes to college for free. Americans are so used to demonizing socialism that most don't really know what it is, or they're shy to admit that they're curious about it. Like how most adults are afraid to watch the Twilight series because what if they discover they're totally on Team Edward? But thanks to a 76-year-old self-described democratic socialist and now a whole host of candidates running openly as socialists, maybe it's time to understand it. We're looking at some of the biggest myths told about the S-word. Hit it, Kate! We've all heard socialism described by the right. You wait in lines for hours, you eat what little nutrients are available, and everyone wears the same thing. Why does socialism sound a lot like Disneyland? Socialism is a favorite straw man of the right, used to disparage any candidate that mentions anything that resembles something like generosity, whether it's Barack Obama or Bernie Sanders. And instead of including socialist voices on television to clarify, they actually have segments like this. I gotta go to the liberal panel. It's gotta be tough for you to look at uh, your candidates and see how boring and stiff they are. They're stiffer than you. Well, they are. Well, thanks a lot. But they did talk about policy, unlike the Republican debates, and it's not socialism, it's capitalism, it's democratic socialism within a capitalist society. You wanna talk about giving stuff away? Yeah. It's giving stuff, what Republicans do is give stuff to the top 1%. Is Social Security socialism? Medicare socialism? Yes. Medicaid socialism? Yes. You wanna take all that away? I I do. I want to take all of it away. See how that stupid works panel. in campaign. <laughs> I want to take it all away. I don't want the government taking my money. I can spend it better than they can, and I can't believe I'm yelling at you and again. You're oh, my God. 
Greg Gutfeld just lost an argument to an animatronic gag he scripted to make himself look smarter. That's like getting your ass kicked by a punching bag. Seriously though, there are many different definitions of socialism depending on who you ask. And just because a country has socialist policies doesn't mean it's a socialist country. There are degrees of socialism. So let's just start out with a safe Wikipedia description. Socialism is a range of economic and social systems characterized by social ownership and democratic control of the means of production. That sounds pretty harmless, and yet, of course, that's what a collectively edited, nonprofit, free encyclopedia would say, and look how that turned out. Oh, pretty good. You can think about socialism as democracy for the economy, an economy that takes planning and forethought and doesn't just leave wealth distribution to the invisible hand of the market, which in case you were wondering, looks like this for the 99% of us. And yet, instead of having an honest conversation about what a more democratic economy could look like in a country with the worst income inequality since before the Great Depression, we hear this. Listen up, all you Bernie Sanders supporters. We'll say it again, socialism doesn't work. Socialism keeps failing. This is Socialism 101. We've seen it fail over and over again. It's failing now because of problems inherent to socialism. Myth number one, socialism's been attempted and failed. But has it truly? Critics point to examples of leaders who took a twisted version of Marxism and implemented it to the extreme, like Pol Pot of Cambodia or Stalin's Soviet Union. But those are better examples of totalitarianism than anything else. As Noam Chomsky, linguist and man who lost a ward for most desirable lefty grandpa to a younger, hotter Jew put it, the Soviet Union wasn't actually socialist. He says Russia called itself that to trick those sympathetic to socialism, and the U.S. did the same to make people more afraid of socialism. The core notion of at least traditional socialism is that uh, what you mentioned, that working people have to be in control of production. The Soviet Union is the exact opposite of that. Uh, working people had no control over anything. They were uh, virtual slaves. Also, why judge an ideology on its most extreme examples? That's like judging a love of baseball by the Red Sox fan who carved red socks into his forehead with a broken Miller Lite. Loving baseball is the least of his problems. Funny enough, though, even baseball isn't safe from the myth that socialism has failed. Listen to this announcer calling a Dodgers game suddenly go off on socialism when a Venezuelan player steps up to bat. Socialism failing to work as it always does, this time in Venezuela. You talk about giving everybody something free and all of a sudden there's no food to eat. Anyway, 0-2. Oh, oh my God. I truly hope that somewhere out there there is a Spanish language announcer mentioning the failures of capitalism when calling an American soccer game. Bueno. Son malos porque no hay dinero en el fútbol. No es como el fútbol americano donde hay muchos momentos para publicidades. El capitalismo vence al deporte. Piénsenlo. Cero a dos. Yes, Venezuela is going through an insane political crisis right now. But it's not clear that that crisis has anything to do with their socialist policies. And since that would take another 10 minutes to break down, instead, we threw a couple of links to articles below for you to read. Yes, read. But what we never hear when discussing Venezuela is how putting their nationalized oil money into social programs led to a dramatic reduction in poverty and an increase in literacy. And how about Cuba? Has socialism failed there? Cuba is not a democracy, for sure. 
but it also has the highest literacy rate in all of Latin America, not to mention free healthcare and free higher education. And now they're developing a lung cancer vaccine, and that means they'll be able to safely smoke all the cigars that we can't even import. Instead, we've been left with vaping, which is somehow less cool than cancer. Another myth we hear is that socialism is too expensive. But too expensive for who? In France, the government covers all or pays back at least 70% of healthcare costs, which meant a lot when this couple had twins. Even though the boys were delivered by cesarean section and Nomi spent nine days in a private room, leaving the hospital, they paid 19 euros. 19 euros. Coincidentally, the dollar price of an Uber ride to the ER in the US to avoid going into debt over an ambulance ride. Compare that French experience to an American couple who went bankrupt after also having twins who were premature. It was 2.2 million. Oh, we lost everything. We paid every bill we could. We sold everything we could. We sold our car, we sold our furniture, we sold our clothing. We liquidated our 401ks. We got, we, I mean, we sold everything. Jesus. But you might be thinking, well, France spends more money on healthcare, and you would be wrong. Uh, France spends 11% of its GDP, and the U.S. spends 17.2% of our GDP on healthcare. And France is consistently ranked as having one of the best healthcare systems in the world, while we clock in last when compared to the 10 most developed countries. But on the bright side, Trump is working hard to make us not a developed country. So what about students? Is socialism too expensive for them? Because in many countries around the world, university tuition is essentially free. In Germany, it's even free for foreigners to benefit from, like Americans. I had heard things like I'd be able to drink, I'd have health care. Each month it cost about 600 euro to live here. My room, train tickets, school, food. My main motivation, of course, was saving money. Was it? Because I'm pretty sure the first thing you said was you'd be able to drink. So I think that's where your money's going to be going. Ah, oh, you can take a boy out of South Carolina, but you can't take a tall boy out of his hands. Germany doesn't see free college as a drain on the economy, but believes that investing in young people's education, even that of non-Germans, will benefit the German economy in the long run. Compare that to how we pay for school in the United States, which is basically an F-U-I-O-U as student debt just hit $1.5 trillion. Though to be fair, student debt is a job creator for student debt collectors. Germany's example flies in the face of another myth spouted about socialist policies, that they're not good for business. They stifle innovation and competition, and heavy regulations and taxes only make companies move abroad. Work for less, Bangladesh. But take Denmark. The government spends a lot on job training and education, especially for the unemployed. And Danish companies participate in these programs because it means they have a stronger workforce. So when Danes get laid off, they get help learning a new skill that isn't putting together IKEA furniture for strangers. Mostly because they hate the Swedes. In 2015, Denmark was ranked by Forbes as being the best country for business, and is consistently ranked as the happiest country on Earth, something Fox News blowhards like Bill O'Reilly desperately try to find a way to undermine. When I heard the Danes were the happiest people on Earth, I thought back to my ancestors in Ireland, who were beheaded and raped by the Danish Vikings. <laughs> and I don't know if that was a happy experience. I, yeah, Bill, way to dunk on the libs by bringing up an unrelated grudge you've been carrying with you since the year 800. Later in the same conversation, the intrepid reporters hit on another myth about socialism. The it'll never work in America myth. There are five and a half million Danes. Right. And that's it. 
We have 300 million people here, Bill. Okay, this myth I really don't understand the logic of. If there are more people paying more taxes into a social welfare state, doesn't that mean more money? What, suddenly Americans don't know how to scale up? We gave the world Starbucks, Walmart, and King Kong. We're all about scaling up. Another myth about socialism is that it requires big government, and that government is not democratic. But look at Norway, a country whose economic model has been called a 21st century version of socialism, and has also been ranked as the world's best democracy. After the global financial crisis of 2008, Norway decided not to tighten its purse strings. Instead, under a socialist finance minister, federal control of financial assets in sectors like oil expanded, and the government directed that money into their sovereign wealth fund, or national bank, which is part of the reason Norwegians enjoy benefits like universal health care, education, guaranteed parental leave, and oh yeah, no national debt. As far as democracy goes, Norwegians are automatically registered to vote, and 78% did in the last election, compared to our 55% in the last election. Not that the stakes were high. Norway has nine parties instead of our two, a parliamentary system of proportional representation instead of our winner-take-all system, and Norwegians have reindeer. Can we have nothing? When all of the myths above fail them, conservatives always resort to a final myth about socialism, which is capitalism is better. Die-hard capitalists insist there is no alternative to their system. Sure, it's claimed as many, if not more, lives than socialism, from colonialism to rampant poverty caused by neoliberal economics to, oh yeah, the millions who died in wars fought to preserve its dominance, capitalism is still better. Just watch how economist Milton Friedman, the Bunsen of free enterprise, defended his ideology in an interview with a barrage of whataboutisms. But it seems to reward not virtue as much as ability to manipulate the system. And what does reward virtue? You think the uh, communist commissar rewards virtue? You know, I think you're taking a lot of things for granted. And just tell me where in the world you find these angels who are going to organize society for us. In Norway, we've been over this. They're with the reindeer. But if that kind of cynicism is what defends unfettered capitalism, maybe we should rethink it. But listen, I am happy to be proven wrong, which is why I'm going to consult my conservative panel. Hey, conservative panel, what do you think about all these socialist myths? What they're, what they're not myths. They're not myths at all. Generosity is evil. If you give people free handouts, they're going to have to eat rats out of buckets. And don't ask me to link cause and effect. Cause and effect is fake news. Okay, okay, listen, conservative panel, I know you're confused and angry because things aren't always black or white. History is fluid, and your president is going down in a fiery ball of lies. But maybe keep an open mind about socialism. Capitalism is built on greed, which, as it turns out, is not best for either people or business or the planet. Maybe capitalism could use some socialism. Americans are innovative and hopeful, so maybe the world has yet to see the best of socialism, and even capitalism. Um, actually, Jesus turned the other cheek to ignore a homeless person. <sighs> Thanks once again for watching News Broke. If you haven't heard, this is our third to last video, which is oh so sad, but guess what? We've got two years. Okay, that's uh, Francesca Fiorentini with uh, the biggest myths about socialism. <clears throat>
baseball announcers saying socialism fails and it always does. <laughs> and who does it fail? The mother raising kids on her own? The bum, homeless bum on the corner? People who are struggling every month to get it together and survive and aren't quite making it? Let's see. Here's a story I want to talk about because Francesca talks about um, greed. Milton Friedman talks about greed as the basis of capitalism. Here we are in Trump's America, y'all. Two people in Tennessee commandeered, stole 18,000 bottles of hand sanitizer and put it on sale at higher prices. The senators, we talked about that earlier, representatives and senators who sold out their stocks because they knew that this big pandemic was coming. They knew it was going to happen. Of course, they told the public that everything was okay because they didn't want the price of their stock to fall before they sold it. The worst kind of insider trading. States competing for resources. Now here is, oh, this is a capitalist wet dream. Instead of gathering together all the resources you have and doling them out from a central source, like the federal government. The government is competing against the states for available masks and respirators. For shame. We have Lindsey Graham saying that if people get unemployment, too much money, they're not going to want to work. They're just a bunch of lazy bums who are looking for reasons not to work. Of course, he doesn't understand, maybe not being a working person himself, that that unemployment money is going to be spent <laughs> on stuff, on survival. It's not like the workers are going to sit back and collect their checks and profit, put money in the bank every day. We're talking about marginal support unemployment plus 600 a month uh, 600 a week it's not going to make you rich it's not going to make make it so you don't have to work no you're unable to work so this is going to be spent right away on food and survival mr graham here's a nice nice one Union locates 39 million N95 masks for healthcare workers, local governments. SEIU, Service Employment International Union, Healthcare Workers West, announced Thursday that it located 39 million N95 masks and will make them available to state and local governments and healthcare systems that are fighting 
the novel coronavirus outbreak. This is NBC Bay Area. Union officials, the union found a distributor with the masks, which are cleared for surgical use, after pleas from health care workers as new coronavirus cases surge across the state and the country as a whole. Union officials said they also found a supplier that can produce some 20 million protective masks per week and another that can supply millions of protective face sheets. They're continuing to turn over every rock to see if we can find more personal protective equipment to make sure that healthcare workers who are heroically putting their own health on the line to care for patients can do their jobs as safely as possible. SEIU UHW President Dave Reagan said, the supplier has already sold some of the masks to the state of California. The Greater New York Hospital Association, Dignity Health, Kaiser Permanente, etc., etc. Union representatives have con contacted procurement officials from each recipient directly to the supplier to arrange each transaction. Hospitals in Arizona have also been offered 2 million masks from the supplier, but have yet to accept, according to Regan. We are pleased with these initial results. We recognize they are stopgap measures in light of the estimated 3.5 billion masks that could be needed during this pandemic. We urgently need the federal government to step in and drive a coordinated national response to the PPE, personal protective equipment, shortage. So, greed works. Greed doesn't work. No, greed doesn't work. Mr. Trump, of course, is pushing everybody to go back to work. He can't wait to open up, uh, to take off all these restrictions, put people back to work. And to be truthful, the big corporations and the big shakers and movers, those that Mr. Trump serves, are looking down the line, and what do you think they see? Workers not working, workers staying home, the collapse of the economy, worker, workers demanding better treatment, more of the resources that they produce. In short, a collapse of civil society, a collapse of capitalism, a revolution down the way. Got to get those people back to work producing so they can make us rich and, and forget about the way they're being ripped off. Here's uh, Sarah Nelson. Sarah Nelson is the uh, head of the airline workers 
aviation industry must come with strict rules. That includes requiring employers across aviation to maintain pay and benefits for every worker. No taxpayer money for CEO bonuses, stock buybacks, or dividends. No breaking contracts through bankruptcy. And no federal funds for airlines that are fighting their workers' efforts to join a union. So as the airline industry looks set to receive a government bailout, we are all asking the question, what about the workers, Sagar? That's right. So joining us now to talk a little bit about this is the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, Sarah Nelson herself. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm glad to be on. Absolutely. So, Sarah, one of the things that we're looking at as the airline industry is asking for these bailouts is what are the actual worker protection provisions that will be included here? What are some of the things that your group is asking for or is noting or looking at very quickly as the airlines look for a multi-billion dollar bailout from the federal government? Well, look, um, let's be really clear. There just can't be a bailout. We've done that before. It doesn't work. Focused on uh, the banks and companies, it just doesn't work. So we actually have a plan. This is not just about fitting into uh, a relief package that the airlines would get. This is about labor leading on this and saying we're going to do things differently this time. So we're going to structure this in a way that starts with real people because the, the truth is that this is something that is going to hurt the entire country. We are, flight attendants have been on the front lines of the coronavirus for two months now. We've been dealing with the safety and health issues. We've been doing what we would normally do to try to stop the spread of a communicable disease um, by using our training. But this overtook us, it overtook our entire industry, it's overtaken our entire country. And so now uh, we are in a real world of hurt here. And airline em uh, employees know very well uh, what that means. We know what it means when the paycheck stops. So we've been through this before and we're applying our experience from before to make sure that this doesn't look like any other bailout in the past. In fact, we're saying no bailout. This has to be a worker relief program. So we are structuring it in this way. First and foremost, continue to keep the paychecks going. If you keep everyone in their jobs, even if not on the job, then you can keep them connected to their medical insurance. You can keep them connected to their sick leave and all of the provisions that apply. And there may be some, uh, some additional things that need to be done to make sure that sick leave can be paid and all of that. But keep the paychecks going, keep everyone on the job. There is an immediate threat here with this healthcare crisis. Once we get that contained, we need to restart our economy right away. So what we are doing is we are uh, focusing on putting a relief package in place that focuses first on keeping the paychecks going through the payroll of the companies, because we do not need the federal government becoming the HR solution for the entire American populace. What we need to do is focus on attacking the virus, focusing on where people are sick and the most vulnerable, and we need to keep everything else running as it is today, as much calm as possible so that we can uh, give help to the frontline people who are trying to get their arms around this disease and eradicate it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so paychecks first. So paycheck, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world what you're saying, Sarah. Has anyone from the administration um, spoken with you? Has anyone from congressional leadership reached out to you? Um, yes, I think that this is going to move and labor is leading on this. So we are we are leading on this. I want people to hear that. Um, that we are applying what we've experienced in the past and leading now. 
So relief, worker focus, those paychecks. And then our companies are going to need some additional help through direct loans from the government as well. But with those loans come strings attached. So no more stock buybacks, no executive bonuses, no dividends. This is not going to be a bailout for Wall Street. This is going to be a relief package for workers that's focused on workers, focused on real people. You know, every other economic crisis that we have faced has been when we have leveraged individual people so much that when the balloon breaks, they can't take care of themselves. That's not what's gonna happen here. We're gonna rebuild our economy and maintain our economy by making sure that every single person who can right now can continue to take care of themselves so that we can focus on the people who are sick and the most vulnerable with unique fixes there. We're not gonna leave anyone behind because if this disease has shown us anything, is that the principles of unionism are exactly what's at play here and what's needed to understand. An injury to one is an injury to all. There are no borders with labor. And in fact, if one person is infected in this planet, we are all in jeopardy. So in the, in the response to that and how we attack the virus, we need to make sure that we're taking care of every single person. And in the airline industry, labor is saying, we're gonna set a standard here. We're gonna set a template that the other sectors can use as well. We're using our experience from the past. We're gonna have worker relief focus here, keep the paychecks going, no stock buybacks, no dividends, no executive bonuses and uh, direct loans from the government. And that is the package that's gonna work to allow us to restart our economy again. Mm -hmm. Sarah, have you seen receptive receptivity to that? I know that they're actually, I've sent, everybody from Senator Elizabeth Warren to Senator Josh Hawley are basically talking about what you're, what you're saying here. Do you see a receptivity to that? bipartisanship um, in terms of passing some, including those provisions on any worker relief pass, package that is forthcoming from Congress and the administration? So it's not a mistake that you're hearing that both Democrats and Republicans are on board with, we are working on this. We are working on building the political momentum to get this done. Workers need this, airlines need this, the sectors need this, the people who understand the economy um, and we're making a good argument here, understand that this needs to be done. You know, the airlines need this to be done because they know that when you check people out of a job, when you lay people off, there's actually a process you have to go through, especially when people have a security clearance. And if, if you stop the normal procedures of training and keeping people up with their qualifications, when you try to restart again, not only are you trying to call people back and bring them back to their job, but you have a major backlog of training and everything else. So it's harder to get everything started up again. And Sarah, and that's why, what yeah. are you hearing from your members about their fears, concerns right now? Do you have people, I mean, you know, these are, as you pointed out, workers who are on the front lines of, you know, interacting with passengers who are flying from all over the world. Are they able to get the, the tests that they need if they're showing symptoms? Are they able to get the care that they need? What are their concerns that you're hearing right now? Well, Crystal, thank you. Um, you know, the number one and overwhelming concern is that they're starting to hear about the enormity of these furloughs and how they could be impacted that way. But as I noted earlier, we've been on the front lines of dealing with this as a health issue. And I have reports from all over the country of flight attendants who have not been able to get tested, sometimes waiting five and six days to get tested. We had one yesterday who was confirmed as uh, a confirmed positive of coronavirus, 
Um, she had come back from a trip from Europe, had flown a couple other domestic trips in the meantime, and then tested uh, positive for coronavirus. So the testing is concerning. Uh, we had another flight attendant earlier on last week uh, who was actually in a hospital with many symptoms uh, that were much like coronavirus. She ended up testing negative, but she also had to wait for the test because the hospital said they could only do 42 a day. So this is, this is why we were not able to get our hands on where the virus was actually living so that we could isolate that and eradicate it. And that is really concerning for us. And that's why this has overtaken our industry. We are still uh, practicing safety precautions on the front lines. We're getting our airlines to put protective equipment. We're using our training to protect ourselves. We're raising issues when there are um, exceptions with CDC and flight attendants have refused to take flights where they didn't have the proper safety equipment or protections in place to, um, to support them. And so they are advocating out there and taking actions that are necessary to keep people safe as much as possible in this scenario. But this has become so overwhelming and in our communities that we, it's, we can't control it. The yeah. airlines can't control it. It's overtaken. Yeah. And meanwhile, your, your flight attendants can't get tested. And meanwhile, eight NBA teams right. can, whether they have symptoms or not. I mean, it's absolutely outrageous. It's Sarah, unconscionable. We're, we're so grateful for your time and your perspective today. I know you're really busy, but I hope you'll keep us updated. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. We're going to get this done. All right. Sounds good. That was Sarah Nelson, head of the uh, Airline Workers uh, <clears throat> Union, giving her read on the bailout package. We got 10 protest songs lined up here. Let's play them. The birds. And today we're counting down our picks for the top 10 protest songs. For this list, we've chosen songs that argue against the status quo, ask for change in social, political, or other spheres, and or are associated with particular events, periods, movements, etc. We Shall Overcome, Pete Seeger. Although the song had been kicking around in some form since, well, no one really knows, We Shall Overcome has become synonymous with Pete Seeger. The whole wide world around. The, the banjo-slinging folk legend certainly had a hand in shaping the song as we know it. Used as a musical form of protest during the civil rights movement, the anthem features simple but honest lyrics that made it a ready battle cry for any group facing adversity. Plus, it continues to be recorded in support of a number of causes today. Number nine, Sunday Bloody Sunday, U2. Despite being drenched in U2's signature echo pop sound, Sunday Bloody Sunday is actually the band's response to the British Army's armed attack of Northern Irish civil rights protesters in 1972. 
also known as the Bogside Massacre. The incident resulted in over a dozen deaths. Thanks to its clanging guitars and military-inspired beat, it's become one of the group's signature songs. But it's the respect and authority with which U2 tackles the subject matter that really makes it stand out. Number 8. The Police, N.W.A. gangster rap track, N.W.A. went straight out of Compton and straight into controversy. By presenting a clear street view look at racially motivated police brutality, the police got the rappers noticed by the FBI. government agency's attention to lyrics that appeared to support violence towards cops actually helped fuel the band's cred and popularity. Meanwhile, the song has become a classic protest song, and the weight behind its title phrase has become a recurring theme in hip-hop music. Okay, that's the beginning of our list of uh, protest songs. And if there was ever a time for protests and new ideas and an overthrow of the greed society by whatever means necessary, peaceful, this is it. The uh, Samaritan is lying there in the street. As you walk by, what are you going to do? Hmm? What are you going to do? Are you going to help that man? Hmm? Or are you going to walk by? That's up to you, I guess. Uh, as somebody said, the union ethics, an injury to one is an injury to all. Help your brother. Maybe he's on strike. You're not, maybe you're not. But we all rise together or we all go down together. Labor has no borders. See you next week on Labor and Love.
person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the negotiating table. You're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. No wonder they don't want you to have a union. No wonder they want you to get back to work. <laughs> your work makes them rich. Your work upholds their constructed world. Anyway, come back next week for labor news, opinion, history, and insight. Meantime, be kind to one another. As Jesse Jackson said, we didn't all come over on the same boat, but we're all in the same boat now. your boy Sifo here here to let you know that the fifth annual mutiny radio comedy festival is march 1st through 7th 2020 with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m to 10 p.m all week get your tickets now on eventbrite just search mutiny radio and get ready for 76 comics from all over the u.s coming for 66 programs in seven days all here at 2781 21st street in the heart of the mission or if you can't be with us, listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at www.mutinyradio.fm. Join us March 1st to 7th for these amazing events. What kind of a future? Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear, too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Davis, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Carmine Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 
Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on mutinyradio.fm for Let's Watch a Full Length Movie on YouTube. We watch the best movies that, uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch What's happening? This is your boy, Rob Edwards. I'm here to tell you about the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's March 1st through the 7th, 2020, with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week long. Get your tickets on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comments from all over the U.S. Coming for 66 programs in seven days, all here at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission, or listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at Mutiny Radio. FM. Join us March 1st through the 7th for these amazing events. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience, like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought or two. You know, if you go to joke workshops, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's joke workshop. Joke 
workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counteroffer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counteroffer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counteroffer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counteroffer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counteroffer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counteroffer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counteroffer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of 